Welcome to OxPods, the podcast by students and their professors at the University of Oxford. For the good times and the bad, we turn to the closest around us, our friends. But what is the science behind friendship? And why is it important to have friends? I'm Mia McFarlane, a human sciences undergraduate at Regent's Park College. And today, Professor Robin Dunbar, specialist in social evolution in primates, and best known for formulating Dunbar's number, has joined us over Zoom to talk about friendship. Hi, Robin. Thank you so much for joining us on Zoom today. It's a great pleasure to be here. Shall we start off by introducing the idea of social evolution? And could you perhaps talk about why you became interested in it as a research topic? I guess social evolution really is just the study of social systems in all animals, and by definition, that includes humans, of course. But um, I think anybody who studies social systems would consider themselves probably a biologist, an evolutionary biologist, stroke ecologist, uh, as much as anything else. But there are a lot of anthropologists that um, are interested in that topic, mostly in humans, of course, perhaps, although they're less interested in evolution these days. But the biological evolutionary anthropologists, you know, tend to do a lot of work on primates or people who count themselves as evolutionary anthropologists, uh, probably the mainstay these days of, of people working on primates. So it's trying to understand really why social systems have evolved across the big picture the animal world, shall we include trees? Do they have social systems? They kind of do. I did once apply for a grant for mate choice in trees, but they thought that was too far out to fund, I'm afraid. But, you know, um, all organisms interact with each other, within, with members of their species, and I suppose that's what it's all about. How did I get into this? Very early on as an undergraduate, so for my third year project, in psychology of all things uh, a very very long time ago i went off to ethiopia and studied baboons in the wild for three months with a couple of other uh, people and that really got me hooked so um, i then went off and studied more baboons for my phd and um, studied primates for a long time and then antelope and feral goats for a long time before i started looking at humans really so all through that thread is this, this interest in how these very intensely social species like primates, obviously humans, work, interact with each other. You know, how do they manage to overcome the stresses of living in close proximity in order to achieve the evolutionary objectives which every, all organisms are driven by, which is obviously their genetic fitness. But, you know, the, the social system that these species live in is a kind of stepping stone between the sort of immediate causes and, and, and long-distance effects that, that most animals, less social animals, uh, tend, tend to um, operate by. So primates tend to have this extra layer of explanation that's required because the the social group is a way of solving ecological problems collectively rather than this individual trial and error learning all just makes it much more complex and therefore more fun excellent so let's narrow straight down and how do we define friendship are there interdisciplinary generalizations or is there kind of a, a specific definition depending on who you ask. is the root of the problem, actually, because friendship is such an indefinable, nebulous thing that for given that there are probably, I don't know, half a dozen disciplines that are interested in it, so development psychologists, social psychologists, sociologists, certainly primatologists, because they've started to use the term friendship uh, of relationships between monkeys uh, and apes within social groups and others, um, probably you would come up with a different definition. I, I kind of use a somewhat loose definition, which is, is simply really a relationship, but it's an intense kind of relationship of a kind you don't really 
find in other animals outside the anthropoid primates, that's the monkeys and apes, um, except in the context of pair bonds in other birds and mammals. The primate relationships between two monkeys, let's say, have this kind of intense quality that's very, very reminiscent of what we see and I suppose experience in humans. So that, you know, they, it has that kind of complexity and, and uh, sort of subtleness. Um, uh, and if you watch primates, and anybody who, who, who studies primates in the, in the field will tell you this, you know, it is really just like watching a soap opera on TV, you know, real life is there. And, it, and you don't see that kind of subtlety, all the scheming that goes on and, and the irritation and, uh, with, with other people who become, when they become annoying and all these kind of things that bedevil us in our everyday experience. You just see it going on in front of your eyes, really. Uh, and it, it, it's what makes primatology fun, if you like, or studying primates, the behaviour of primates fun as well as more complex. But if we step back a bit from, you know, I, I tend to take a philosopher's view of definitions as far as science is concerned. At least I, my claim is that the way science works is not to take too hard a line on definitions. Scientists will go, well, we kind of know what we're talking about. Uh, let's see how far we can get with that definition, because as you explore it, the real world, you know, using experiments, collecting data and doing statistical analysis to test hypotheses, it will eventually eradicate all the froth and mistakes. Um, and, and the contrast to that is very much, I think, the social sciences who get hung up about definitions before they even get started. So they never get started. Right? Whereas the scientists will kind of go, well, let's just assume these are molecules. <laughs> or something silly like that, and let's just see how far it gets us. Right? And then, you know, experience in the real world will, will teach us otherwise, and we'll gradually refine and hone our definition as we study it, find out what the true definition is. But in the meantime, it's whatever will just get you down the road a little bit is what's important, I think, in science. That said, what we understand now as a function of the last 25 years of research on human friendships, I suppose prior to that, another 25 years of research on monkey friendships, is that friendships arise out of two separate mechanisms working together. One is a very kind of right brain, if you like, more emotional quality to it, which is very difficult to describe. That's say we can't describe it very well. It's this kind of, you just know when somebody is your friend, you know, you don't need them to say, hello, I'm your friend. You know whether they're your friend or not, therefore you know when they let you down, and all these kind of things. And at least that's say, you know when they let you down, you be cross. Whereas if it was some vague acquaintance and they let you down, you just kind of go, oh, for goodness sakes, move on. Uh, so... There is this kind of deep emotional quality. Now, in primates, that's triggered by, by grooming. And grooming triggers the endorphin system, and we still use that. It's, you know, been transmuted in us because we don't have any hair to groom, obviously, or mostly not, not a lot of it, let's put it that way. This entire surface of the skin uh, has these highly specialised receptors which respond only to skin deformation. Um, as a result of hand movements across the skin as in grooming. And they react only to light, slow stroking at three centimetres a second. If it's too slow or too fast or too rough, they don't fire up. You get it right, they fire up, send a very slow signal to the brain um, because it's un unmyelinated neurons, unlike, for example, pain neurons, another uh, peripheral neurons. And it triggers the endorphin system in the brain. The endorphin system is part of the brain's pain management system. So it's dampening pain uh, sensations, as it were. But what this does is, by triggering that, it creates a sense of relaxation and warmth and coziness and all's well with the world and 
I trust whoever I'm doing this with. And it seems to create the underpinning then for friendships. And, and we still use, clearly, physical touch, soft touch, as it's called, all the time in conversation with not everybody. Mostly it's it's people who are more meaningful, closer to us, as it were, relationship-wise. Um, you know, during the course of conversation, you're constantly patting them on the shoulder or stroking their arm, hugging them, all these kind of things that we kind of litter our conversations and social interactions with. Uh, and those are essentially triggering the endorphin system by the, this touch mechanism. But the problem with touch is it is very limiting in who you can do it with. It's very time costly. Uh, and it's very intimate. It's intimacy and the fact that you can only do it with one person at a time. So I sometimes like to invite audiences. If you don't believe me on that, just go and sit in the back seat row of a cinema and try cuddling two people at the same time. I guarantee that one of them will leave within 10 minutes and be quite cross because you've not been paying them enough attention. So it's very intimate, very personalised, one-to-one, and that limits the number of people you can be friends with in that sense. So what we've discovered is other mechanisms which break through that glass ceiling because you don't need touch. There are things like laughter, singing, dancing, eating together, drinking together, uh, storytelling. All these things we've shown trigger the endorphin system, some of them better than others. And all of them can be done with lots of people. I think our biggest experiment was with choirs of 200 people. And singing together with 200 people is even more bonding than singing in the same choir with only 20 people. It's extraordinary. Uh, and also, you know, we know it's endorphins because we've looked in some of it, we've done brain scanning experiments and shown that the brain lighting up with endorphins. It's some mostly we've used pain threshold changes. So the endorphin system, we found all, all this big social toolkit really uh, that allows us to bond with lots of people simultaneously. So that's one aspect of it. And then there's a cognitive aspect that runs along the side. And this is very characteristic of how primates create their friendships. Their psychologists would call a dual process mechanism. We've got two neural channels working in tandem with each other. And that second neural tandem is cognitive. Whereas what primates are doing, kind of evaluating their friendships, the trustworthiness of their relationships and making decisions about, you know, today that particular monkey as it walked past and, and, and uh, scattered dust in my face, do it deliberately or did, was it just an accident? because it makes a difference how you should respond. Then what we've done is expanded that. So we, we create what we've called the seven pillars of friendship, which are seven cultural dimensions of who you are, really, what sort of, which really they identify the cultural, tiny cultural community you come from. They're very, very narrow because we like our friends to be the same as us. It's this homophily effect. Somehow it just makes things, I, the answer it really, I think, is it just makes conversation easier. You don't have to explain the joke. If you don't have to kind of belabor everything, if you can sit there in silence when silence is the right thing to do and not feel embarrassed, all these kind of things that make a relationship flow um, are really underpinned by homophily. So the more similar you are, the more you understand each other. And the seven pillars of friendship, which are these seven cultural dimensions, which come out of your mouth as you speak, because they, you know, things like your dialect and your hobbies and interests, your sense of humour and your musical tastes, all these kind of things. Those those things define the kind of community you grew up in primarily, we think. So it defines the natural community that you're comfortable with. Because being cultural, they, they change through life to some extent, but but you, you never leave that sort of, I guess it's the teenager, it's where you grew up. It's why people always have this romantic notion when they've moved to the other side of the world. It's a romantic notion, they'll go back to see where they were born. 
they really mean where they grew up. They're always disappointed. But there's that sense of somehow that 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 stage of your life was so important that it creates a sense, strong sense of bonding, okay? such that if you meet somebody, the you know, two o'clock in the morning, you're the only two people in the bar in Marbella. And it turns out you both grew up in the same village, <laughs> even though it was at different times. So you never actually were there at the same time. But you know the same streets, you know the same pubs, you know Mrs. Cafe or whatever, where you hung out. All these kind of things, um, you know, sort of seem tick boxes and um, kind of create this sense of belonging. And it's that sense of belonging that's important for friendships, because what friendships are there for is to do some work for you. So, you know, if you look at the different kinds of friend friendships you have, they're doing different jobs. They've got a sort of inner core of what we call shoulders to cry on friends, which are the ones who, when your world falls apart, they're the ones that will drop everything, including the crying baby, to come and pick you up. Right. Whereas as you go further out and bump out of your natural social world, perhaps into the world of acquaintances, people are less and less willing to do that. You know, oh, it's not really convenient at this point. <laughs> Could you come back next week, maybe? I, I often invite audiences to try it. You know, go out into the street, throw your arms around the nearest stranger's neck and say, my world has fallen apart. I need a hug. Guarantee they will reach for their mobile phone and they'll either call an ambulance or they'll call the police. I'm not sure which. But if you do that with your good friends, you'll get a completely different response. Now, the problem is the difference between friends and strangers is you've invested a lot of time making those friendships. And that's what makes them come to your aid, if you like and be prepared to do it without asking questions or without expecting a return even necessarily. And it's because you spent a lot of time building that relationship up, up with them. And they are very costly. Um, we, we devote about 40% of our total social time, the time we have available to each day, to just five people, those five shoulders to cry on friends at the centre of our world. And another 20% to the next 10 most important people. That's 15 people get 60% of our total social effort. However you measure it, it, it doesn't make any difference. You get the same story. So that, that that is hugely expensive and you have to keep that up. You know, it takes a lot of time to build a friendship up in the first place. But even once it's built up, you have to keep investing in it. Otherwise, what will, will happen is very quickly, if you don't see somebody, is that they kind of slide down the scale of friendship. And you can see that if already within about two months of people not seeing us. So, you know, you built up all these friends at university. You all go off in different directions, your job, promising to meet up. And of course, you know, some of them you will, but some of them you kind of don't quite get around, around to it. And those, those latter friendships will gradually decline in quality. And after about three years, they will be just an acquaintance. So not only are friendships important for you, because they provide that support. And of course, they're fun to be with. That's the sort of immediate benefit. You have to invest, continue to invest in them. So talking about investing and costs, why do we have friendship from a social evolution perspective? From a kind of social evolution perspective, it's so that you're surrounded by people who will form a defensive alliance against threats from outside. So in, in, in kind of real life, historically, because we don't live in real life now, most of us, but in the days when we live amid predators out there on the, the plains, as it were, as some people still do, but we have this uh, unfortunate habit of killing off all the predators as fast as we can, wherever we go. Um, but Historically, it was for protection against predators and secondarily, but not necessarily less important, protection against raiders from the next door valley, who started to become much more important probably. So the, the predation problem is the original reason for living in groups. 
but in maybe from the last few hundred thousand years, uh, pop, human popula population has just started to expand very fast, um, started to create pressures that seems to have produced a lot of raiding. And certainly in historical times, that's been a major problem. So I think there's been a shift from worrying about lions and tigers, as they say, to worrying about the people next door or in the next door valley. Uh, chimpanzees have the same problem. But, uh, in that sense, they're very, very similar to, to humans. They, they worry about predators. They have one grouping level to sort that out. And they worry about their next door neighbors. And they have another level of grouping to sort that out. So that, that's the sort of base to it. But then what happens is, or what has happened in the course of evolution of humans, or recent evolution of humans, we've expanded the size of our communities outwards beyond the kind of basic group size, community size, um, which is really equivalent to our extended social network. We still see that signature in our social networks. That's a group of about 150-ish. We've extended those layers out, out to ever bigger groups, the most important one of which is, is the tribe. Um, which is a linguistic unit, really, of somewhere around usually about 1,000 to 2,000 people in most small-scale societies. So our capacity to form extended friendships with this wider range of people seems actually to be related to trading primarily. Well, it's, it's trading in the sense that it's a buffer against ecological disaster where you live because of a tribe will have a very, very large home range in hunter-gatherers, 100,000 square miles or something. So, you know, if you have some ecological disaster where you live, famine, volcanoes, or whatever, um, or indeed raided by, you know, another tribe uh, from further away, then, then you've got somewhere to retreat to. And this is a purely reciprocate arrangements so you can go and knock on their door because they're far enough away not to be affected by the same problems so they're going to be okay and you can go and knock on their door and say about 10 years ago we allowed you to come and live with us do you mind if we come and live with you and they kind of go yeah all right but again you know you have to have these bonds they're not close bonds the way friendships are but they're bonds and we signal them all the time in the way we dress the way we speak and indeed you know a tribe is a linguistic unit it's the people that speak the same language so there are all these cues which allow us to recognize members of the same same tribe in these small scales um that, yeah, so that's the kind of big evolutionary picture but the problem is living in groups is very stressful so what happens is at the bottom of this pyramid of, of, of social levels from the complete group, uh, you have the little groups. These are the shoulders to cry on, friends. And what they're there for is to buffer you against the stresses of living in close proximity to other people. So they just keep other people off your back a little bit and stop them. It's, you know, they're, they're not defending you out with their you know, swords and shields, anything dramatic like that. It's just very subtle. It's just keeping everybody away from you enough that it doesn't cause you stress, but at the same time doesn't drive them away and cause you to lose the benefits of living in group. Now, it turns out that there are huge health benefits in the quality of those friendships. So to everybody's surprise, the last 20 years, there has been huge quantities of data from longitudinal studies, cross-sectional studies, various parts of the world showing that the single best predictor of your future psychological health and well-being, say your mental health and well-being, and your physical health and well-being, and how long you're going to live into the future from this moment onwards, is best predicted by the number and quality of close friendships you have. The closer that number is to five, the better it is. But it, I, mean, I say the closer it is to five, it's going to vary a bit between extroverts and introverts because they kind of work in slightly different social dynamics. But, you know, introverts might prefer four and extroverts six, let's say. The closer you get to that, the 
more healthy you are, and these effects are massive, absolutely massive. You know, we, we could, if we wanted to get rid of the NHS's huge financial black hole, there's a simple solution and it's free. Just find everybody a friend. They wouldn't need to go to the doctor. I mean, they wouldn't be so ill as they are now because you know, if you if you end up being lonely and feeling, I mean, it's fine if you like being on your own. That's that's you know great. You're very lucky in one sense. But if you if you're very intensely social and you have no friends because of I don't know, you just moved to a city, you don't know anybody. That that creates depression uh, very quickly, and depression creates is exposes you to physical illness. You don't have the resistance. It turns out the endorphin system seems to kick the immune system into action. So if you want to solve the problem, you know, either laugh a lot, or dance a lot, or sing a lot, or sit around and have meals with friends. Uh, because all of these kick the endorphin system in. It's the best free antidepressant medicine you'll ever get. And it works better than the stuff they give you <laughs> in pill form. And it's non-addictive. And it has all these incredible benefits, uh, on knock-on benefits on your physical health, it seems. So if you were to sort of put one definition down at this point, I guess you might want to say, well, actually, the health benefits are very, very valuable. The health benefits of friendship. Um, but that... At the end of the day, friendships are two-way processes. You know, you can't. Um, it's what very young children do. You know, they 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 assume somebody is a friend if they if they want to be a friend with that person. So they say, Jimmy's my 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 best friend. You know, when they first go to school and things, and you ask Jimmy, are you Sansa's best friend? You go, no. <laughs> My best friend's Peter. And, you know, it takes them a long, it's a long time to learn that friendship is a two-way street. Uh, and you both have to want to be friends with each other. Once that relationship's established, though, it has these incredible benefits, both to yourself, but more importantly, they're there as your backstop for when your world crashes. Now, if, if your world never crashes, which it doesn't for some people, You've been very lucky, and um, God bless you, as they say. But most of us, most of us, at some point in the seventy or eighty years we get, will have a uh, you know some kind of major crisis or other. It's not a financial crisis; it's you know sort of psychological crisis or you know, whatever economic crisis. Um, at that point. Friendships become crucial, and uh, particularly the inner core of friendships. I hesitate to say it, but the one reason for having a very big network is you can couch surf without annoying too many people. <laughs> Lots of them. I'm not sure I really recommend that, but it can put a, a stress on relationships. Um, but certainly in terms of those inner core, I mean, at one sense, you know, having a lot of uh, sort of low quality friendships of that kind provides those kind of um, more casual benefits. But at the end, probably the really important ones, most people are these very close friendships, just of which you have just five, of, of usually a couple at least, close family members rather than just friends. So we've talked a little bit about how we create friendships and the importance of friendships and social networks. And I wonder, in the current day with all the technology and digital media that we have, how does this change the way that friendships and social networks are operated and their role and perhaps the impacts that they have on our life? It's an interesting question, and it's an interesting question for several reasons. Um, what is a theoretical one was to us because we wondered whether the constraint on the number of friendships you can have is the fact that you have to invest so much in each one, and that limits, you know, or the amount of time you then have in the day to do that 
uh, limits how many friends you can create at that level of intensity. And therefore, if you had a way of bypassing this face-to-face -face constraint, because you can't kind of, if you like, you can't go around and hug 20 people at once. It's just physically not possible, right? Um, uh, and so if you can bypass that, does, would it allow you to have more friends? And digital media seemed a, the most likely sort of environment in which that would be possible, because obviously you can post to very large numbers of people. Whether they read it or not is another matter. But principle allows you to do that. Um, secondarily, though, it's become a very hot topic in a sense because it, the, what the answer is, has implications for hybrid working, which has suddenly become very popular post-lockdown, where you only go into work a few days a week, and you work at home the other days a week. So we might come back to the second one if you, uh, at some point, maybe. But uh, the issue with digital media, okay, digital media aren't new in the sense we've had digital media ever since somebody had the bright idea of writing letters. It's a bit slow initially, carving uniform symbols into bits of stone, sending them off. But obviously, it got faster and faster with time. And then we had the telephone start to get seriously digital, but it was kind of doing the same thing. And this actually did dramatically affect people's relationships because it allowed people who had moved away. So people who had emigrated to another continent, for example, let's say from Europe to America, or Europe to Australia, or whatever, uh, allowed them to keep contact with the family, which would otherwise have been lost very, very quickly. Um, by and large, it's interesting to reflect on how that letter writing process worked in the 19th century, because what it did was keep the first generation of migrants in touch with their ancestral home, and their, their family, but it didn't really create any relationships in the second generation. So the children of the two halves never really formed any bonds. So, there, so it, it, there were clearly limitations. Then we're into the phone era 100 years ago, and then, you know, sort of, I don't know, 19, mid-1980s or thereabouts, email kicked in in a serious way, social media recently. When we've looked at this, at one level, it doesn't seem to make any difference at all to your number of friends you have or how often you contact them. So we've looked at both telephone databases. So this is like a particular big telephone data set is 20% of one very large European country. And then one provider's mobile phone data set for a year. I think there are 6 million subscribers and 6 billion phone calls in the data set. It's huge. We've also looked at postings on Facebook, postings on Twitter. So that's the Twitterati, the people, the followers of the Twitter account, talking to each other, tweeting to each other with named things. And our definition of a friendship in these contexts is it must be reciprocated. So you send a message or phone Jemima, Jemima has to phone you back at some point. Otherwise, it doesn't count. If you do that, what you find is the same size of network, about 150 people in all these media, as you get in the face-to-face -face world. And your your social network of 150 people, which typically consists of about half extended family members and half friends in the Western world, because of our small families. If you come from a culture which has very large families, you don't have many friends. Right? And that is also true of people in the Western world. You know, people come from very large families and have 40 first cousins. And some people do. My wife does. Um, you know, they they will tell you. It takes all their time just to get around their cousins. So they don't actually have many friends um, outside the family. Anyway, so um, the, the layers that you see within the 150, which create this sort of inner core of five, 
shoulders to cry on, friends, and then this layer outside it of 15 members of what's called the sympathy group and so on. You see exactly the same layers in all these media. And what's more, what is even more surprising is the frequency with which people contact each other in these layers mirrors exactly the same frequencies as we see in face-to-face world. So the, the digital world isn't allowing us to do anything different. We kind of treat it more or less as, as we treat the face-to-face world. And so all these kind of different media are substitutable. If you, if you can't go around the corner and knock on Penelope's door, you can send her a text or you can send her a Facebook post or whatever. And they, they all kind of work. But our impression is, though, and other people's, is that digital media aren't really as satisfactory as face-to-face, and that includes telephones. Zoom and Skype and those kind of video-embedded media tend to do better than text-based ones, but they're still really not in the same league. And I think the lockdown experience has taught us all that a kind of Zoom meeting with very long established friends in the generic sense, that usually means family, work okay. But Zoom meetings with friends who are more recent friends doesn't work very well. Well, it's okay, but it's a bit clunky. And Zoom meetings with quote unquote friends from work are really acquaintances which is what a lot of business try to do, are very awkward. Partly because you can only have four people engaged in a conversation at any one time. So that's true on Facebook, not Facebook, Zoom, I guess. An audio medium, it has to be. As it is in the real world. Now, in the real world, if we're at a big party, we would all break up into little groups of three or four conversations. You can't do that on Zoom. And it gets, then gets dominated by the four people with the loudest voices, and everybody else disappears into the background, checks their news feeds, checks their email, looks out of the window at the cat walking past, and things like that, and kind of doesn't engage. Um, and it's very difficult to know how to, to fix that, and it may not be possible even. So, so the, our view is that all these digital media really are extraordinarily good. I mean, they're amazing. They do work well, and they serve a very useful function. That function is mainly that you can keep friendships going when people have moved away much, much more. You just keep them ticking over, at least. Uh, But our impression is very much that this is a sticking plaster. Sooner or later, if you don't meet up in person, so you can sit in either side of a table in a whatever, and stare into each other's eyes, reach across the table, give each other a hug. If you can't do those things, or dance together, or sing together, uh, things that you cannot do online, really. Um, If you can't do that, then those friendships will eventually uh, become acquaintances somebody I once knew, and, and, and it's just inevitable. You know, things, the rate of decay is being slowed down, by, let's say Facebook or whatever, you know, uh, digital media, but it's not being halted. Um, so there is that major disadvantage to it. Right? What the techies are doing with kind of haptic communication, so, you know, vibrating phones, cushions that warm up, somebody else presses a button at the other end, are enormous fun and really quite spooky, actually. I don't know if you've ever tried it. <laughs> just found it extraordinary when I was uh, given a try in a lab they were developing some of these things. Uh, I mean, it really is kind of fun spooky, but I, it just doesn't quite have the same feel as, as the kind of casual touch that you would normally engage in. And at the end of the day, it's stuff like laughing and singing and dancing that you do with your friends that creates the bonds, particularly when you're younger. So I'm kind of not hopeful that it will solve the problems of the universe, but uh, it's not to be sniffed at, on the other hand. It actually does 
it is a useful channel of communication. So how do you think, I guess to wrap up, how could do you think we could apply these understandings about social evolution and friendship and the intimacy of friendship and human interaction to perhaps other disciplines in the human sciences umbrella or perhaps just to the to better the world for everyone else in general I, I think in the end the reality is that we are intensely social as a species right that in that we're we're just the same as all the other anthropoid monkeys and apes, particularly the, the smarter anthropoid monkeys and apes. We live in an intensely social world, and that's the secret of our success. We go, to do that because it allows us to collaborate in solving the problems of life, death, whatever, if you take the, the very big picture. Um, so it, it kind of, I think, makes it important to remember that particularly if, if just for a second, we focus on one particular aspect of the world out there, namely the world of work, that the workplace is a social environment. It's a village. Now, there's been a tendency, certainly in the last 50 years or so, under kind of, you know, sort of the theory of management and business organisations that have been developed at that time, to treat the whole the world of business as, as a kind of a clockwork machine, you, know, you wind it up and it goes, or you press a button here and, and, and there are outcomes, and completely ignore the fact actually all organisations, whether it's a school or a hospital, government department or insurance company, factory making stuff, all these things are social environments, and we spend a lot of time in them. We used to before lockdown. Right? You spent the saying went, you know, you spent more time waking of the waking day at work than you spent at home, at least in the working week. And of course, people made friends at work, maybe not necessarily your best friends, because obviously you have friends at home, but you know, you have very good friends at work and you might do stuff with them outside. Um, and that's important. But what I think was lost in the pipeline here was the fact that the reason people collaborate and cooperate with each other in producing any outcome, no matter what that is, is out of a se in, in life in general, is out of a sense of obligation and relationships to each other. And that's all been lost. You know, there was a time, if you go back to the early part of the 20th century, the late 19th century, when these big companies like Unilever, Cadbury's, all these kind of big multinationals being set up, and they were set up by a family or family businesses. When they started moving into the factory environment, they created these on-site social venues for their workers. Every, they all had social clubs, tennis clubs, bowling clubs, you name it, debating clubs there on the factory side the famous ones are the railway clubs because every railway station all over the world as we built most of the railway in the world and one thing that they had here and was exported everywhere they found them all over india for example was the railway club so everybody who worked at that club at that station you know whether they were driving their trains or ticket collectors or the manager of the stations or they were automatically members they went along they played bridge or whatever you do in had a beer or played tennis or you know all these kind of things there were social clubs and 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 so people uh if you like the fact that the workers in the factory at all levels not just the workers on the factory floor but the management as well all got to know each other as people and therefore you know when when there's some crisis in, in, in the workplace because of some unforeseen thing. And one department rushes along the corridor to the other department and says, can you help us out? Uh, we, it's a bit, you know, bit, bit of difficulty here and we just need a bit of help. If, if this is somebody you don't really know, your, your, your response is likely to be, well, actually, we've got enough problems in our department without having to cope with yours. You know, go away and sort your own problems out. And so the whole thing gradually falls apart. Whereas if people are, you know, know each other uh, and have played tennis with or whatever, 
uh, uh, dance with each other, um, you know, they're much more likely then to say, oh, well, let's see what we can do. We'll, we'll help you out through this. Um, but you can't, you know, if you take those, of course, you know, those kind of social environments disappeared after the Second World War, so about 50, 70 years ago. Um, they started to be seen as not so important. You had this kind of more mechanistic, hierarchical management structures being put in place and so on, which were much more anonymous. Um, and, and those kind of social impact costs, if you like, were being seen as a waste of money. Um, and therefore, they were done away with. And of course, people had other interests. They started to, you know, families became more important, people and, and so on. Um, and there was a shift away. But, but the, a lot of people are now beginning to think somehow we lost track of reality during this process. We need to kind of rethink the environment. Of course, you know, tennis clubs and bowling clubs are not the sort of thing that most people are going to want to do. But there are other ways of doing it. And a lot of companies, big companies, Silicon Valley companies tend to be very good at this kind of thing on the whole. You know, have found ways to kind of re-institute in a more modern form um, these kind of social environments. So you get this kind of relationships being built up, or networks of relationships being built up around under a system so that you, you're not always dealing with strangers. So I think those kind of environments are important, but, but it, you know, that's the sort of one tip of the iceberg. The other tip of the iceberg is that we, we are becoming increasingly less social, I fear. It's all right for young folk at university. <laughs> what else do you go to university for? You know, uh, it's a social environment and it's kind of ready-made for you. Colleges, course of residence, whatever. You know, you're provided with a ready-made social environment. But if you're moving away to your first job to a city that is a, you know, you, you've never been to before, or at least never seriously been to before, and don't know anybody and don't know where to go, then it leaves you, whatever you're doing, it doesn't really matter. It leaves you in a kind of um, isolation, which is not going to be, terribly good for you. So you had this pandemic of loneliness, particularly in the 20-somethings, for the last couple of decades as a result of this. It takes a long time to feel your way and build up networks and stuff. So the question is, should employers work harder is trying to create a more genial environment that uh, both is good for the you know, employers, employees in general, but also allows people to bed in better. Likewise, I think we are just becoming a bit more sort of, because of this shift away. If you go back to the early part of the 20th century, um, you know, village life was village life still, even in big cities. You know, everybody knew each other in the street, in the slums, or in the village. And, you know, they would all go to the same pub. And, and uh, it, you know, you had a much more intense, supportive community. But I think what's happened is we put the barriers up, we put hedges around our houses, and we sit inside watching telly and not go out. Now, you know, and there are benefits to that, of course, you know, children don't have to play out in the street because that's the only thing that they can find to do anymore. Um, they can play with their parents, heaven forfend. Nonetheless, it's creating this much more inward-looking social world, I think, which is much more restricted. And I kind of feel that we really probably should be making much more effort to get out of the house and do stuff with friends and in social environments where you can meet people and make friends. So, you know, I mean, people have been sort of trying to do this of late. I mean, the, the, not, the big one is the big lunch, which once a year is the derivative of the Eden Project. Um, once a year, they persuade everybody to go and put a trestle table out and close the, the, the get their road closed off for traffic with the council, which is fine if it's a cul-de-sac, obviously. It's difficult if you live on the main thoroughfare, but never mind. Uh, you know, put trestle tables out and everybody takes some lunch out there and they all share their lunch and actually talk to each other. And not only is this community building, it's creating friendships for you. Uh, 
at the end of the day, the nation state, the country you live in, is just a huge version, if you like, of a business. It's a, a social enterprise. So if you don't know who lives in your town or village, uh, you don't, you're not going to know much about who lives in your country either, and you won't feel any obligation. To, and social life at the end of the day is all about obligation. That's that's what comes to us here from all the stuff we have spent the last 50 years, I guess, doing studying monkeys and apes in the wild. But also it's very clear that that's how the human social world works and it will always work better. It's well-oiled at that sort of level. You know people, you have a better understanding of where they come from because you know, everybody's these days, um, these multicultural environments, everybody's bringing in a slightly different multicultural pitch to things. You know, if you don't leave your house, you will never learn about that. I was very lucky because I grew up in Africa in an extraordinarily multicultural environment. Extraordinarily so. And just looking back on that, I realized how valuable that was. Because now, if I'm talking to different groups of people, if I if they're the kind of, um, particularly in the Indian communities, because lots of Indian communities, I can sort of put my local hat on for individual Indian communities because I just without even thinking about it because of growing up there, and the same with the the Af African communities from East Africa. I just you know, I grew up in. That. Literally grew up in that right round the round the fire, and so you know it it gives you a very different perspective on the world. We don't have that now. We don't even have that um, within, let's say, a nation state like Britain. Never mind even within England as a subsector. <laughs> it, it's partly a consequence, I think, of of just the sheer size. The bigger the community gets, the more polarised it becomes, because people cluster together in their cultural subgroups, basically, because it's easier to have a conversation as much as anything else. Whereas, you know, looking back on my childhood and teenage years and to early adulthood, you had no choice, right? You want to be picky about who you talk to, you'll end up talking to nobody, because there there's going to be nobody in your little particular neck of the woods that falls into that particular category. So you have to go out and mix it people. To look back on that, I think that's such a lucky break um, to, to have had that. But I, I think that will never happen again because the world has got too big. The world is much, much smaller. Well, thank you so much, Robin, for finding the time to take our call and to talk to us about your research on friendship and social evolution. It has been so fascinating and so warming to hear. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Oxpods. If you enjoyed it, please do recommend to a friend and check out our episodes from other channels too. To keep up to date with episode releases, to suggest ideas for new episodes, or to get involved with recording, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or go straight to our website at www.oxpods.co.uk.